0: Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joint and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Welcome to the Blue Collar Berean Podcast. Thanks for joining us. We are your host. I'm Scott McGrady. Sitting here
1: with Nate Henley. And we are back for round two. Round two of our discussion surrounding the sufficiency of God's word and how it plays out in life. How it affects everything that we do. So, before we jump back in, we appreciate your feedback. We appreciate reaching out, bereans at gmail.com, hit us up. If you want to disagree, give us some ideas also our facebook page
0: facebook.com backslash blue collar bereans and you can like our page and share any of the things that we post there and if you have benefited from this at all it'd be a big help to support us by rating us and leaving a review wherever you listen to this podcast
1: yeah supposedly that's that's a really big thing so anyways Without any more gibber jabber on our part, we're going to jump back into where we left off last time with our discussion on the sufficiency of Scripture. What I'm finding the issue is, and even for me, oftentimes I've said so many biblical mantras throughout my life and, you know, would tell people all the time, yeah, I'm a sinner just like you, but really did I believe it? And often when I would say things uh, in the workplace or, or to friends or family, whoever, there was a disconnect in my mind. Um, with saying something and really believing it and living it out. And what I feel like is the temptation for me was pragmatism. And in my mind, you know, I'm doing a good thing. I'm not going to come right out and confront this sin in my mind. I'll just talk about the good things and offer Jesus as a good thing that, that will make their life better. And then we can eventually get to the sin. That kind of a, of a mindset. And that's that's a pragmatic mindset where... We think that, you know, it will work better this way. And so we compromise things. You know, I would still say what they're doing is sin, but, you know, let's not confront that right now. And and I mean, I get to some degree everything we do, there's an element of pragmatic thinking in all that we do. God has given us brains to, to work and to reason, to logic, to look at things. But being pragmatic versus being principled is something that I think we need to talk about. Because God's Word does give very specific layout for right and wrong it gives us very specific instruction as to how we are to live how we are to evangelize what is supposed to change people and i think we often think we know better and that's where the pragmatism comes in well i'll i'll do it th- this way and so what is popular right now well right now racism is a hot topic and so we end up chasing our tails doing whatever we can to stay relevant And we create magazines with that very name so that we can stay relevant. I mean, it's mind-boggling that that is the name of this magazine. And let me tell you, they certainly stay relevant. But theres I don't think there's any amount of Christian logic on that publication, especially when you're quoting Richard Rohr and just outright heretics on there and i mean you can see how that shapes their worldview and what they write there and and that's that's, it's such a almost i hate to use the word a slippery slope to start going down that but it really is it we become pragmatic in the way we approach life when god's word is very principled it gives us principles of right and wrong and he tells us how we should act what we should be proclaiming and we so badly want to change that and i think we make excuses by saying well it's going to work better this way Look at this church, how well we're thriving, because we've used these pragmatic tools to help this church grow. But has it really? Are you functioning off of a biblical definition of church? Are you functioning off of a biblical definition of gospel? You've got a lot of people there, but I think you've compromised on your definitions. They're not biblical anymore in order to get success, success by a non-biblical standard
0: and we've been seeing this for a while. I mean, when right. did when did Rick Warren's book Purpose Driven Life and Purpose Driven Church come out?
1: When I was in high school, I believe. Yeah, something like that. Uh,
0: I mean, I I know I read them in college, but yeah, they were they were out for a while by then. Yeah. I think at least. But yeah, it's looked like this for a long time. I mean, Going back to that, that point with him writing those books and saying, listen, this is how and he always prefaced it, like, don't do not do just what we did. We're just telling you what we did mm-hmm. and how it worked, but don't don't copy us. What's well, the point of the book then? <laughs> right. Uh, but, I mean, even think, the whole idea of, uh, of I think, one way we see the, the lack of sufficiency or the lack of belief of sufficiency and authority of God's word creep into the church, as you're saying, goes back a while and goes back into even our preaching, that our preaching has to be shorter— and it's got to be relevant, relevant. And as you know, right. i even made fun of the magazine, which deserves it. Uh, right. We, what does that look like to be relevant? You know, we need to have these quick, short answers to life. We need five steps to a better marriage. And, and we need the secrets to financial freedom. And uh, we need to have know how to have our best life now. Mm-hmm. We need relevance. And what we have, though, is the Bible tells us what is required of us. And what he has designed us for. And so all of these things kind of focus around people saying we need to talk about people's felt needs. Mm. And that's what we need to address because, one, like you said, that's what's going to attract people. That's how we're going to get to preach the gospel mm-hmm. to them. That's how we're going to work. We're going to solve right. their – we need to address their felt needs. And there's a couple problems with that. Uh, one, it's challenging the idea of relevancy of the scripture. As if if you're preaching the Bible, you're not going to be relevant. All right. If you're just going verse by verse through whole text, you're not going to be relevant. And there's a serious issue with that. The Bible speaks to who I am. Like I said before, I, again, I think it's J.C. Ryle, says that this is the book that reads me. Mm-hmm. It, it speaks to who I am. It speaks to what my needs are. Now, uh, there may be felt needs, because this is radio and people could see me doing the <laughs> finger <Air> quotes. quotes. <laughs> yeah. uh, but there may be felt needs that get addressed. My marriage can get addressed, Mm -hmm. but the Bible is going to tell me what God has designed marriage for and what he calls me to be in my marriage. It doesn't give me five steps to fix my marriage or to a better marriage. Mm -hmm. It tells me who I'm supposed to be in my marriage. And ultimately, I'm supposed to be more like Christ, Mm -hmm. despite whether or not my spouse grows to be more like Christ, although that's the purpose for her, too. But I'm to be more like Christ. It's going to tell me uh, about good stewardship and what that means, that really everything I have belongs to God. So it's not the secret of financial freedom, but how do I live my life in such a way that shows that everything I have really belongs to God and really comes to him? And it tells me how to think about having my best life now and how I should think about having my best life now, as others have said it, that if you have your best life now, you're going to hell because... This is not the best life. We're going to go see Jesus if we are saved. Right. And that is the best life. We're going to go be like Jesus when we are saved. Uh, but again, I think this all comes down to this idea of we have to preach. We have to be relevant in our churches. We got to, uh, you know, the idea of expository preaching. I remember hearing Andy Stanley ripping into the idea of expository preaching. Mm-hmm. He, he called it, that's the easy way out or that's <laughs> the easy thing to do because you just, you always know what you're going to preach the next Sunday. You just know already. <laughs> Right, <laughs> uh, but it's but you know what he does is hard work because he really has to think about how he's going to connect with his audience. Right, and but again, it, it does challenge the sufficiency of God's word when we think that way. Uh, the word of God is relevant. We refer to Hebrews four twelve. You know, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two edged swords, piercing to the division of soul and spirit of joint and marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. God's word is living and active because God himself is living and active. Mm-hmm. God's word accomplishes what God purposes. And so if that's true, how could it not be relevant for me today? Right. It certainly is relevant. Uh, the word of God is always relevant as God is using his word and has purpose in his word going out. And that, as Isaiah says, his word always accomplishes his purpose. It never comes back no and void. Right.
1: So do you really believe that? Right. And that's where I, I I've certainly can say I've struggled because I have thought so often, even in my church ministry over the years, like, we need to do this so that we can reach fill in the blank. Um, If our church is to grow, we have to provide this. Why? Because we have to show them that we have a product to sell. We have to show them that this product is worth their time, and that's how we're going to sell them, with my air quotes, on, on this product, which my product was, I thought, Jesus. But in doing that, it reveals to me, and certainly I struggle with this over time, it revealed that I didn't believe that God's word was the power to save. I did not believe the gospel was the power to save, which is what it says. His word says that. He said, we read his word, it judges us. And it is God's word, you know, that makes us born anew. But I didn't believe that in my actions. If you asked me that, I would say, well, yeah, yeah God's word is true. and uh, But, you know, in my actions, I certainly didn't believe it. I thought we had to sell it and I had to offer it. I had to find a way to package it, make it look slick in order for it to do its work. And that's truly what I think started, caused me to start doubting. You know, I say, I believe the word, but I mean, let's be honest. The only churches that I saw growing were the ones that were putting really sleek packages and selling it. And, and, you know, in my mind, it's not really God that's doing the work. It's Andy Stanley doing the work. It's not God's word being proclaimed that is doing this work. It is people that look cool. It is people that look slick, that are smooth talking, that have shiny white smiles like Joel Osteen. (laughs) Uh, I mean, you fill in the blank. Like No one was going to, quote unquote, do great ministry unless they had something special about them. And that's when I really begin to think like, Is there really even power in this book? You know, we say it is, but I don't see it happening. I see it happening in in other ways. And that's, you know, in my own life, I was was living that out, and it wasn't working out the way I thought. And so I think it's a good question to go back and ask yourself, you know, do you really believe God's word is true? Do you really believe it's powerful? If you do, put it out there. Obey it and see it work.
0: And it's true that all the tactics and different things that people in churches use— to draw other ones in it, whoever first said it it's true that whatever you win them with is what you win them to right and so are we winning them to jesus or are we winning them to a cool church mm-hmm. are we winning them to jesus or are we winning them to a a rock and band and light show
1: what are we or the latest one is is a, is a is a really great community right i feel like that's the the hot one now sure. a lot of times people don't even care what the preaching of the church is but the community and community is great
0: but even define that though,
1: because the right. Bible does
0: call call us to be a community together. Sure, but define that. What right. does this community look like?
1: Right, a- and one that's willing to suffer for the name of Jesus. Right, one who's real, who's willing to take up their cross and and follow after Jesus and
0: call out sin in one another's
1: lives. Right, yeah, uh, and hold each other accountable and discipline each other. Right. That community is hard to find, right? That is true love, as biblically defined.
0: Because other community, it's about how you make me feel. I feel comfortable. I like how I feel here. Where in this community, like we're we're willing to be uncomfortable for each other, yeah, because we love each other enough Mm -hmm. that I'm listen. It's not going to be. I'm not going to like how this is going to feel to confront you in your sin, and I'm a little afraid of how you might respond. But I love you enough to do it.
1: And as we do that out, this might mean
0: the end of our relationship, and we're willing to risk that for the love that we have for each other. Right. Uh, Yeah, Yeah. exactly. And and I think that comes back to, again, to the sufficiency of God's word in Mm -hmm. our lives. And we really believe it because again, if it's all about, you know, we got to reach them to their felt needs. Well, that that's problematic on a lot of levels. Cause one, I mean, there are felt needs that the Bible will address. If if I want a better marriage, well, the Bible addresses my marriage, but it may not address better marriage the way I'm defining it. Right. And, but even still, I may have my felt needs, but the Bible always address my actual needs. Hmm. And there are needs that either I don't know I have or I'm going to ignore that I have because I want my sin and I love my sin. And I want to hold on to it. Or again, I just don't know. I'm just ignorant. But the Bible is always going to address the needs that I actually have, whether it's a felt need or not. Mm-hmm. And that's why God knows. God knows me. He created me. He knows my mind. He knows me inside. now. knows me better than I know myself. I need his word to tell me what I actually need. Mm-hmm. And so not the the relevancy that's defined by the world in usually just um, this emotional draw. It's, it's what is the truth of God's word and how does that speak to my life? That God's word is sufficient for me. Right.
1: And so, and this kind of goes back to how we define God's word, which we did in a previous episode, but that's that's all of God's word. And if that isn't the foundation of our ministry, if that's not the how we determine truth it's not how we determine how to do ministry you, know, you, you mentioned danley stanley but you know his whole apologetic is one that says we need to stop tethering our faith to the word of god and we need to tether it to the resurrection
0: This minimal christian apologetic
1: and but even i i get what he's getting at because his whole logic is that you know the bible's hard to defend the bible's hard to sell but we can sell I think that's.
0: I think that's the right way to say. I don't. I don't know that I would say it's hard to defend, but it's hard to sell. I think that's.
1: I'm saying from his his logic, this is what he would say. It is hard to sell, and sadly, I think he would say it is hard to defend. And I I think certainly, we we have to be informed by it to defend it, and that's part of the problem. We, We struggle to defend it because our our morality is often shaped by non biblical sources which is at odds, but that's a whole different thing. <laughs> right. But all I to say, it's it's hard to sell. So instead of selling scriptures as the foundation for faith, let's sell a resurrection based on evidences. That's easy because we can agree with the resurrection of Christ. And, you know, eventually we can get to scripture as our source of authority. But even if you don't, no biggie. And that's why we can then unhitch from the Old Testament. Because let's be honest, that's the hardest part to defend is the Old Testament. That's not even true I either. Gonna, I don't. I the gonna, New I Testament don't understand is that. still hard because because things that are hard for to swallow in the Old Testament are also in the New. But we can pick <laughs> and choose. It's easier because there's red letters in the New Testament. So, <laughs> and even those, <though> really. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, Jesus condemns plenty of. Yeah, that's all. It that to say that that's his whole apologetic is that we can start with the physical resurrection and and wow he offers such great things so let's sell that right once again how do you define these things i'm selling a resurrection but why did he why did he need to resurrect what was he resurrecting for why did he die where does relevance does that have to me what right uh what meaning does that have apart from the standard of right and wrong which is god's word that has to be our starting point that has to be what our faith is tethered to as scripture said that's that's what gives us faith is the truth of god's word and the holy spirit opening our hearts to that truth and it only comes by the proclamation of that truth it doesn't come by i watched a documentary on the physical evidences for the resurrection of christ i understand god can use those things perhaps to dismantle some of our thoughts, some like we might be keeping certain things at bay. We might be really, because, you know, as Romans 1 says, we are suppressing the truth. And so it might take a matter of time where God does have to unravel many of our barriers we've set up. Because in in our suppression of truth, we often set up barriers. So I can't believe the Bible because of science. can't believe the Bible because it's morality. I can't believe the Bible because of this or that. And, you know, God can work in these apologetic ministries where they dismantle, okay, well, I can't. It's getting harder and harder for me to keep this barrier up. It's getting harder and harder for me to keep this barrier up about science. It's getting harder and harder for me to keep this barrier up about the morality, about different things. And through that, it can point you to Scripture. But the truth, the working of God and saving you and saving uh, people always comes back to the gospel, to the word of God. And that is why this needs to be our foundation for what we do as Christ followers. We have to follow his word. And like I say, this is a challenge I'm giving to you, the listener. But I mean, I also realized this is this is something I, I had to work through a lot. And it was a difficult process because it's so easy to fall into this slippery slope of pragmatism that ultimately, when you follow that path out, you end up looking like relevant magazine. Which is preaching a christless gospel with a richard roar that says you know we can just believe in these universal christ we don't even have to preach the true christ it can be you live your jesus you live and believe in your christ as long as you live that out you know you know christ will see that and those are, that is just an awful false gospel which is informing much of our christian of my christian world that i grew up in musicians i listen to and love I mean, this is so rampant. It's scary that it's everywhere. And so there is a warning to guard yourself from these pragmatic minds of thought and be principled, principled upon what? On the truth of God's word. It has to be our foundation. It has to be our start. It has to be what informs truth for us. If we're not defending that, we're not defending God. Yeah, that's all I got. <laughs>
0: let me let me ask you this. So, saying about church being relevant and that, you know, our definitions or everything has to come from God's word. This is sufficient. So, I guess I really want to emphasize this is sufficient. God's word is sufficient, right? right. So, that's what we're arguing. That's what we're saying. This is the authority. So what wiggle room do we have in what our church looks like to set up our church for there to for uh, basically i guess what i'm I'm specifically looking at is is our worship Mm -hmm. what what wiggle room do we have for what our worship looks like if god's word is sufficient in our authority
1: the older i get that wiggle room looks smaller and smaller
0: so do we have the freedom if this if God's word is sufficient in our authority when we're putting our service together do we have the freedom to add things into our service add elements of our service that aren't in scripture
1: so yeah we're talking about the oh uh, what what is the terms they use The terms aren't really important this is the blue collar so I know what you mean so if it's <laughs> not in scripture is it permissible Or should our services be ones that only incorporate things that scripture specifically permits?
0: Or do we just can do anything as long as the scriptures don't condemn
1: it? Right. Um, I'm not entirely sure where I stand on this one, to be completely (laughs) honest with you. I would certainly say I definitely lean towards more. It is permissible, but I think we really need to think through that carefully before we just start permitting things that the scripture doesn't necessarily condemn
0: so again if this is the sufficient word of god and our authority how does that play into this thought
1: that's a very good point um i don't have to think through this one i would definitely lean towards there are specific commands of things he tells us to do specifically in the church We are to gather and and worship around the truth of his word. There should be the opening of his word. Um, We should be breaking bread together. We should be singing his praises. We should be singing his truth. There's also uh, the ordinance of, of baptism. And regardless of how that looks in your denomination or where you stand on that, but it's still something we would agree that should be there. And so above and beyond that, I would say that, hmm, if God's word is sufficient, so an example would be like incorporating a uh, something of art into worship. There's a lot of church history involved with that, sure, and i i'm with i I kind of lean towards the older I get, the simpler let's make it, and let's let's not make it very.
0: Now, just to be clear, when you say art, like, obviously, music is part of the worship in
1: Scripture. Yes. But it's more than just art, I guess. Right. But I'm just saying someone may associate music and art. I think first we need to make a distinction between music and, I'll say, congregational singing, singing together. We, I think we are called to sing together. And, yes, that is that is music but i feel like it is a little more than just music it's it's, right. yes. it's it is teaching it is admonishing when we do that yep. um so to have just music in general even you know categories i guess such as like a special music there could be teaching and admonishing in that but even just to have music in and of itself to play a musical instrument certainly we see that something that David did and spent a lot of time doing was it part of corporate worship i think it kind of was he had he had people he that was their full time jobs was right. musicians and that brought glory to god i certainly think we i would lean towards the fact that we have been given the right to have some creativity to express beauty which reflect god's glory and that certainly is part of worship But I think we really need to in my mind, this is where I would I would I want to go to and say that I would say we need to focus on the what's the word I want? Focus on what's clear. Really make sure that we prioritize what's clear. If we want to go above and beyond that, right now I'd say I'm I'm not sure there's anything wrong with that. Okay but I could probably be convinced otherwise, to be honest. Like I said, I haven't thought through this one a whole lot.
0: I, I mean, I just... I, My thought was, you know, because it's, that is a... You know, as you mentioned, it's it's been... Throughout church history, it's been a, That's a, a something wrestled with. Long-going
1: debate. Right,
0: um, at least since the Reformation. And I think it speaks specifically to what we're talking about here, the mm-hmm. sufficiency and authority of God's Word. Because I, I would argue that... God clearly wants to be approached in a certain way Yeah, that he is holy. Mm -hmm. And so in how we approach him demonstrates that we recognize he is holy. And so in the worship of him, he he wants to be worshiped in a certain way. And I mean, one of the the big examples in scripture is Nadab and Abihu Mm -hmm. in Leviticus 10. That, I mean, that was part of the worship their their priestly duties. Eli's sons, right? Right. Uh no, uh or, Aaron's sorry. sons. Sorry,
1: yeah, Aaron's sons.
0: Um not Eli. <laughs> yeah, Aaron's sons. And <clears throat> God was very specific about where the fi- how they were to light the fire for the incense and mm-hmm. where that fire was to come from. And all it says is that they they offered they they brought a vain fire. Um or you could say common fire. Something we don't we don't even know exactly what that means. Uh, they they lit the fire for the the incense instead of getting it from the bronze it wasn't the right altar. Fire. Right. It was it was some other fire, and so for that which to us would seem like such a minuscule thing, he lights them up literally. Mm-hmm. He, his, his fire, his wrath breaks out against them in fire and consumes them, a- and then this is why we've unhitched. <laughs> This is why we need to unhitch, Scott. This is too hard to defend. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) But then make it even (laughs) harder. Then their father isn't even allowed to mourn their death. Yeah, Why? Because the holiness of God being upheld was a greater priority than him even mourning his own sons. Mm -hmm. God clearly says, you're going to approach me and you're going to approach me a certain way. He clearly cares about how he is worshipped. And so then again, this is where I come from, uh, that if we're looking at this and saying, okay, scripture is the authority for our life and practice, for our faith, and it is the sufficient word of God for that life and practice, then the elements that scripture gives us for worship are the elements that we are to have for worship. And we're not to go beyond those elements. Now, when I, mm-hmm. I'm emphasizing the idea of elements because, okay, now how do we how do we execute those elements yeah, I mean, there's nothing about microphones in scripture, right? right. I think Bodhi Bakum gives that example. Yeah. You know, we, we see the different instruments in the Old Testament that were used that I don't even know if we even have all of those today even. Yeah. But so the idea of how those things are executed is one thing. But as you open up, I think it's the, the documentary Spirit and Truth. Okay. That talks about worship. Uh, yeah. In the one part of that document, it says, you know, if you open up a church bulletin and, and go through the order of service, every part of those should be something you, you are taking from scripture. Right. And I really believe that's true. I think that uh, if this is the sufficient and authoritative word of God, then this dictates our worship in every aspect of it, in those elements of, of what makes up our approach to God and what makes our, our coming together to honor and glorify him. Mm-hmm. That's where I am with that.
1: I, I, I definitely like it. <laughs> so no ballet dancing.
0: No. <laughs> but. So then, too, how does that then affect, still thinking of the church, how does that affect then how do we look as a church? You know, we, we're going to finish up uh, Titus in our sermon series this Sunday. And so all going through Titus, we're looking at how is the church to be. And so, how is the church to be? how does this still what are what are other areas that this still speaks to when we talk about the sufficiency of God's word? And even as we look at the modern church what what is missing in does the church well, I guess we should define church, but what is called the church in our modern day does it really hold to the sufficiency of God's Word? The very thing that made us start thinking about talking about this was hearing, about Rick Warren and ordaining women pastors. Right. And so even in that, so what are we saying when we step away and basically really call God's word irrelevant? Mm -hmm. Because that is what you're doing. You're saying God's word is irrelevant. God's word is not sufficient for us today because God's word plainly says that this is not a role for women. And, Again, but our culture does. Our culture kicks back against that. So this is being relevant to our culture, saying that the culture is chauvinistic, and that's right. uh, that, that's awful that we would do that because the culture doesn't understand the idea of order. Right. And in the culture, those who are seen up front, those who are leading, those who are the CEOs of companies, those who are making all the money, those who are not that pastors make money. That's, <laughs> uh, that's well, another story, but some do <laughs> some do. You know, those who are making, those who are the breadwinners, those are the ones that have worth and value in the world's sight. So if you're saying a woman, there's a certain position a woman can't have, you're saying that woman doesn't have value. Well, no, that's not what we're saying at all, because that's not where worth and value is found. We have been equally made in the image of God. Right. Men and women, grace, we are equal participants of grace uh, as men and women in the church. The fact that there is an order and that there was someone placed to lead and, and there are those qualifications for those leading, is not speaking to one's value and worth. But that's how the world looks at it. Right. So what are we doing when we can say, you know what, the, the order that God has put into place for the home, for the church, for society, we can brush those things off and we can be a church, but ignore that in the, in God's
1: word. Right, and just for those that might not be familiar with the passage, just trying to look it up here. I know it's in Timothy. 1 um, Timothy 2.
0: Starting, starting well in starting thing. in verse eight. I mean we we often look at when we look at the qualifications for an elder and say that he is to be a one- woman man, we say, see he's to be a man because he's to be a one- woman man and so that and and that's true. Don't get me wrong, right. Uh, but I don't think that's the best argument for saying that Paul is saying that only men can be pastors. I think you need to go to the chapter before because this whole argument of order and and who are to be the leaders, it really starts in chapter two as he's laying out the role of men and women, the actions and attitudes of men and women in the church, you got to go to chapter two. And I think that's really where the argument is.
1: Right. And so as you read through first Timothy and you get, you get verse 12, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she has to remain quiet. It is, it's really not a matter of interpretation. Uh, but this is where you see the logical progression of of pragmatic thinking. You end up giving different definitions, and so I've seen all the gymnastics they do to say, "You know well, we' we've ordained these women, but you know they're not in authority, they're just teachers they're still under authority, and they give all these crazy definitions for the head pastor. Or, or, or different, you know, and claim that they're they're the ultimate authority, and these women are under this authority, and, and it's just it doesn't hold up to the to the biblical definitions of these words, right? So, if, and so you see that it's just it is a logical progression of pragmatism to change definitions to suit your needs. Because would Rick Warren have even said this t- 10, 12 years ago? I mean, it was perfectly fine in that a culture. So I don't need to buck against God's word, but now that culture is really pushing hard against this well i'm going to figure out how can i change these definitions and you know whether or not he probably didn't say it quite like that but you see the progression you see your definitions of morality being shaped not by scripture but by the whims of culture by the whims of of society that is shaping our morality We're allowing society to shape our morality versus scripture and so We cave, we cave in what scripture says, because it it really is, it is black and white. This is not, it's not a matter of interpretation.
0: Right. And even what he says, I mean, even the whole argument that was with Beth Moore, like over the last year or two, and the fact that she was teaching at a church and, but it was, again, it was under her pastor's authority. Right. But I mean, look, Paul says, like, you're right. It's not a matter of interpretation because... It's plain. Mm-hmm. What what is said here is very plain. I do not permit a woman to teach. <laughs> it's just right. it's just there. Like right. what what do you do with that? Now, again, in what context? This is the gathering of the church. So that right. mean there's no teaching element for a woman in the church? No. I mean, you see in other places where women are teaching other women and <laughs> and children and and there 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 is a place for teaching for women, but this is talking about when the the congregation comes together. This is that time of worship what they're holding each other accountable to of being together and where they're practicing the, the elements of communion and, and, and baptism in that setting. No, they're, they're not to teach. And he says not to teach or to exercise authority. Teaching scripture is an exercise of authority. Right. And so you, there's really no way to get around that.
1: Right. The job that one of the jobs of the pastor or elders you've said is to teach. Right. Um, and that's, that's part of his authority. And so in that that teaching to the congregation, you know, authority is being exercised. And so, yeah, just the simple logic of playing that out. It's not a matter of debate. It's a matter of obedience or not.
0: Right. And he even says when he, he goes on and in verse 11, even before that, and he says, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I mean, that's again. People say, "Well, you're saying she can't speak at all." Well, no. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in the idea of teaching, in the context of teaching, yes, yeah, she used to be quiet mm-hmm. in, in that. A- and the thing is, people say there's a lot of reason in this text of why Paul is clearly not pandering to his culture. Mm-hmm. One, because the arguments he gives has nothing to do with culture. He goes back to creation and the fall. Right. But even still, saying a woman should learn was anti-cultural for him. Mm-hmm. Women don't learn. Right. Women have their place, and it is not to learn. It's, it's not to even be quiet. With, not and, even
1: to be together with the men learning. Right, right,
0: exactly. But that's not what Paul's saying here. Uh, scripture has always lifted up women higher than the culture. And even in our today, you look at uh, the, the liberal uh, women's movements and, and feminists, uh, scripture lifts up the value of women higher than that mm-hmm. because they're really degrading women, I'm going to argue. Are. Uh, especially, too, when we're so much about woman's power that we're going to kill women in the womb. Right. Because it's women's power, which, come on, how does that make any sense?
1: It, it doesn't. It but makes this- no sense. And in, in, in these modern feminist cultures, often they boil down a woman's innate value to sex objects. Right. Uh, and and you you get... <laughs> politicians promoting sex work as work like how degrading is that, that this that this is what a woman is anymore like right as opposed to the biblical standard which is what a, a great and awesome gift to the family she is right uh, more than just a sex object i mean there's so much value hidden into the biblical view of a, of a woman as a mother as a wife as a as a caretaker for the family and that just those simple job roles are are so diminished in our society. You know, why why would you give up your chance to go work a terrible, awful job that you you know everyone hates and avoid being at home. It, like our values have been so informed by what the world tells us that we don't even see the value in that. And it's not to say that any woman in the workplace is, you know, in sin. That's certainly not what I'm saying. Um, Or that a woman can't go and level up in a job. But, you know, there is so much value to creating a family. And that is why our culture wants to destroy the family. Because the family, a strong, healthy family, creates a strong Christian community. We were talking about that Christian community before. If it's not rooted in God's design in the Christian family, if we're not building that and really putting a, a high priority on building strong Christian families we won't have a good Christian community. We won't have that. And certainly that's one of the great, awesome gifts of having a biblical wife, a biblical mother. I'm so grateful for the women in my life that have poured into me and got me to the point of where I am. And it's, it's sacrifice from, you know, my mother who poured hard into my life to try and teach me and point me in the right direction and nurture me. Um, They have those gifts and what an awesome thing to use that. It's not something that should be looked down upon. It's, it's sickening that we do that.
0: Yeah, I've, I've known women professing to be believers who have made statements of saying, you know, I don't want my identity all tied up in being a mom or being a housekeeper. Right. And, and so having, you know, feeling the need of, and if they can't, there's like almost depression in this and, and not knowing who they are. If they can't go out... And work, and again, you're right. We're not saying that a woman can't work outside the home. We're mm-hmm. not saying that there's no, there should be no opportunity for women to climb up the corporate ladder doing that. We're not saying that, mm-hmm. but we are saying that for a wife and a mother, her priority is to be her home. It's written into her biology, right? And there's such value and worth. Even as you continue in this passage here, in verse 15, Paul argues for the place of women and men in the church going back to creation, that man was created first. Right. And the woman was created for man. She was to be a helpmate for him. Mm-hmm. And and so she's created for him. And, and we've talked, I think we've talked about this on, on the podcast before. Uh, the idea of value and worth in that itself, that he couldn't be alone. Right, he, He's not going to succeed on his own. It is not good for a man to be alone. Mm-hmm. And if you know me, you know <laughs> it's not good for me to be alone. <laughs> um, but... So the value she is in that he needs her. And and so as he's going back to creation and then two, woman was also the one who was deceived and became a transgressor. Um she was deceived as opposed to Adam, who she just said, here eat this, and he took an eight. And but what you see there is the the idea that Adam gave up his protection and leadership mm-hmm. and what happens? The world falls into sin. Mm-hmm. And so Paul is making these arguments from creation and from the fall. But then he goes on in verse 15. He says, yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. And there's some debate on what this, that verse means. And granted, it's a hard one really to nail down. Mm-hmm. But I do think those who argue are right, that this is referring to in the context, since women led the human race into sin, there's a stigma there. But that she'll be saved from that stigma by raising up a new godly generation. Mm-hmm. And really think about that. How much value and worth is that? That Who has more influence? Like you just said about your mother right. and how she poured into you. Mm-hmm. I mean, what, what value is there in, in pouring into that next generation and right. raising up another godly generation mm-hmm. of the influence that the mothers have on their children to point them to Christ and to raise up... Godly men and Godly women to do God's bidding in this world. I mean, how how do you diminish that?
1: Yeah, it, it it really is sad, and and that's where I don't know how we can tie this all back into the sufficiency of Scripture. But that's that's where it is.
0: I think it is because I think that's challenging. Whether that those, like I said, those those mothers that I I know that say, you know, "I don't want my identity tied up in this." Right or those churches that are usurping the roles that God has put into place for men and women, I think it all comes back to the sufficiency of God's word is God's word sufficient and the authority for you, for your church, for your life that you're going to say, no, God's word is correct here in the order that God has put things in for his purposes so that the way he has designed the church and the family to be, it will be that way Mm -hmm. for his glory.
1: Right. Mm -hmm. So don't take our word for it. Search the scriptures. Be a Berean, a blue-collar Berean. And come join us next time.